So previously on Shadow Step, uh, I always wanted to start like that. We've been wrestling with this big question. I think it's one of the most important questions we can ever wrestle with. Like, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? Like, it's really simple to understand, like, what it means to be a Christian, because it feels like very much like it's a box that you fill in. It's something that you circle, a Scantron button that you fill in. Um, but, like, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? I have people asking me this all the time, like, uh, does it mean that we need to, like, wear the WWJD bracelets and always look down at our wrists to see what we should do? Does it mean that if we have more bad thoughts and we have good thoughts, then all of a sudden we're kicked out? Um, does it mean that we have to vote a specific way, like we have to vote Republican or we have to repo, uh, vote Democrat, and that's how we are, like, following Jesus? Like, what does it actually mean, right? Uh, and we've said from the very beginning of the series that this question of what it means to follow Jesus, we have to take a step back and think about what is the story that the scriptures are telling us? What's the story of Jesus? What's the thrust of what Jesus is all about? And we really wanted to wrestle with this question. Is it possible that Jesus is inviting you and he's inviting me into more than just the bare minimum entry requirements to eternal heaven? Is it possible that God is inviting you into a deeper conversation and a deeper relationship than uh, just if you answer the right question to like, who is Jesus, then all your sins are forgiven and you wait through the hardness of life and then you get like, beam me up Jesus and you go to the heaven place? Like, is it possible that there's more than that going on? Is it possible that following Jesus is deeper and wider and more beautiful than just evacuation from earth? What if he's inviting us to partner with him for restoration on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, and the problem with the story of the evacuation thing where like, you know, beam me up, Jesus, get me out of here, I get to go to heaven because I answered the right question on the test, uh, is the Bible. Like the, the Bible stands in the way of that. And uh, namely, the person of Jesus, the teaching, the life, the ministry of Jesus stands in the way of that. Uh, we said from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we've showed this the last couple of weeks, that Jesus came on the scene announcing one thing that the kingdom of God has come near and we're invited to repent and believe and follow into this kingdom of God thing. And we said that the kingdom of God is not uh, synonymous. It's not equal with eternal heaven. It's actually the rule, the reign of heaven. It's the values, the heartbeat of heaven. And God, through Jesus, is bringing that on earth as it is in heaven. So much so that when Jesus was teaching his first century disciples how to pray, he kicked off the prayer like this. He says, our, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> this is a prayer of participation where we're saying, God, I want to partner with you. And this is what we're praying. Your kingdom come where? Here <laughs> on earth. This is not a prayer of evacuation. This is a prayer of God's kingdom coming down here. It's his rule and reign having its way in our hearts and in our lives, in our homes, in our communities, in Kokomo as it is in heaven. And we've said this every week that the reason Jesus came was this reality right here. Jesus came to earth to make up there come down here. This is the project that God is doing since the very beginning is he's wanting to uh, flood the down here with the stuff of up there, of restoration, of forgiveness, of healing, of hope, of light and life. He wants to bring that that's up there down here. And you know the scandal of it is he wants to partner with you. He wants to partner with you. He wants to partner with me. And he's inviting me into this kingdom conspiracy of bringing the up there down here. 
And that's what he's inviting us into. You know how we follow an invisible God? I don't know about you, but I've not seen Jesus, and I don't see him in my life. And if you have seen Jesus, see Jesus all the time, I'd love to talk to you. That sounds weird and awesome. But you know how you follow an invisible God? First week of the series, we said we need to change the conversation. We follow an invisible God by saying that there is a king and his kingdom, and we are called to not just acknowledge that Jesus is king, but be allegiant, have allegiance towards Jesus as our king. And last week, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, which we're walking through the next couple weeks. And on this teaching that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount, he sits down and he basically kicks off what some theologians call, or maybe I'm just pinning this because I find it to be epic, his kingdom manifesto. You know what my kingdom looks like, Jesus says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you might think that the blessed people, the people that are blessed, that God's favors upon are the rich, the wealthy, those who have their chest puffed out from all their religious activities, those who got their stuff together. But Jesus says, I want you to widen your aspect ratio. And the people on the margins, the people on the outsides, the people that you think don't belong, oh, they're the first in line to my kingdom. And if you think that you don't belong, if you're too far on the margins, you got too much mess for God's mercy. If you think that, oh, you're first in line to God's kingdom. That's how Jesus kicked off his kingdom manifesto. What an invitation. What a story, right? Doesn't this just sound better than, hey, pray a prayer, and at the end of your life, you get beamed up to heaven? I mean, that's cool too, I guess, but this is just, this draws me in. God wants to partner with us in his kingdom. So we're going to go right into the next couple verses today into this Sermon on the Mount, or what we're calling Jesus' kingdom manifested, to see what it looks like to be a part of God's kingdom. What does it look like to make him our king and to walk in his kingdom today? But first, we've got to talk um, about this reality right here. Every now and again, <laughs> there are people in our culture that um, they change the game. They're so successful that they redefine what success is. They, they change the rules. They change the way that people think about everything. I mean, in the world of sports, it's Michael Jordan, right? I mean, I don't care if LeBron, LeBron James just had the scoring record last night or whatever. Like, Michael Jordan changed what it meant to be a successful champion, right? Six finals, six rings, end of conversation for me, right? I mean, he did that, right? He changed the game. In the world of business, I think of somebody like Steve Jobs, who wasn't a programmer or an engineer, but he looked at technology not as something that was just should be cool or powerful, but he asked the question, what is it like from the consumer experience? Like, how can we better people's lives, uh, move people's lives forward in a way to connect them and to help them in their work life? And so he changed the game of how we think about technology. And I don't, if you guys don't know me very well, I'm a big music geek, and I'm a fan of the music of the 60s. I was born in the wrong time. Um, but when I think about music, I think about these four lads from Liverpool. They changed the game. They changed the conversation. They changed what music was all about, you guys. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine this, but they created genres of music with certain experimentations in the studio. They created hard rock when they were recording the White Album when they made Helter Skelter. They created Baroque, uh, Bar uh, Baroque pop when they were playing Penny Lane, like all these different things they were doing. It changed what people thought were possible in music and experimentation. And you know the craziest thing? Sorry, I've been watching the Get Back documentary on Disney+. Plus. You know the craziest thing? Is that they did everything that they did starting in the fall of 1964 and then they broke up in the fall of 1969. Five years, everything that they did, it happened that quickly. They were in their early 20s when it happened. Most bands today record one album, then tour it, and then take a couple years off. They did all of this in less than six years. It's wild. They changed the game. They redefined what it looked like to be a musician, to be an artist, to be a pop culture icon. 
They changed everything. Now everybody's going to go home and listen to the Beatles. I'll be listening to Strawberry Fields as soon as I get in my car. I'm just going to say that out loud. But in a more powerful way, what Jesus is going to do today is he's going to redefine, he's going to reshape, he's going to expand our consciousness to what it means to be righteous, to walk in righteousness, which is a big Bible-y kind of Christianese word we're going to talk a lot about today. But he expanded the game. He expanded our aspect ratio to what it actually means. He got to the heart of the matter. It's what Jesus did. So much so that the passage we're going to look at today, um, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight actually said this about this passage. He said this, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, which we're going to look at today, is the most significant passage in the entire Bible on how to read the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, how to understand the Bible, how to apply the Bible into our lives. McKnight holds no punches saying this is so important if we're going to get this Christian thing right, if we're going to get this Jesus follower thing right. Jesus, he's going to take aim at what righteousness is all about. So let's just dive right in. These are the very next verses after what we looked at last week on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' kingdom manifesto. Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And the law of the prophets is just another way of saying the Old Testament, the first 40 books of the Bible that most of the time we all ignore. Um, Jesus says, do not think, that was a joke, by the way, uh, do not think that I have come to abolish or cancel or get rid of the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means necessary uh, disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus says, I've not come to get rid of the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. Now, when we think about the word fulfill, I don't know about you, but I think about like when you play a video game and you, you beat the game, you, you beat the game every level, you accomplish everything, you fulfill what you need to, you beat the big bad boss at the end and then you get to the very end and you beat the game. Growing up, I thought this is what Jesus was talking about, <laughs> that Jesus actually, he's like, I'm going to actually fulfill, I'm going to take care of all the things of the Old Testament so that they're done with because they're fulfilled in me. And there's some truth to that. I'm going to say a quarter of a truth in that. But in the Jewish mind, fulfill was a bigger idea than this. Fulfill didn't just mean like accomplish and then throw away. Fulfill in the Jewish mind, which is Jesus's mind, was different. It meant to completely understand completely with your mind the right way. It was mental, it was intellectual, but it also meant that it was walked out perfectly. It was walked out with our feet, with our hands, and with our hearts. Jesus is saying, I have come not to get rid of the Old Testament. I've show, I'm gonna come and show you what it actually means to get it right. I've come to fulfill it, to accomplish it, to walk it out perfectly. Because in Jesus' mind, the Old Testament was all about one idea, God wants to partner with us. He's looking for a partner to bless the world, to put the world back together. And Jesus is like, watch me. I'm going to show you how to fulfill all of this from the Old Testament. Not to get rid of it, but to fulfill it, to walk it out perfectly. He says this in the next couple of verses. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Short sidebar. Remember, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. All the time you'll see the phrase kingdom of heaven that's used in the Gospel of Matthew. The reason that he says kingdom of heaven and not kingdom of God is because he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and Jewish people do not say the name of God. They find it to be disrespectful and dishonoring. So when you see the phrase kingdom of heaven, it is not talking about your castle up in heaven. It's talking about the kingdom of God. It's talking about the rule and the reign and the values and the heartbeat of heaven. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about going somewhere. He's talking about entering into what God is doing. So he says this, according, uh, 
who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what he's saying there at the end about entering the kingdom of heaven is not saying that you're not going to go up to heaven. He's saying you're not going to enter into this thing that God is doing on earth. You're going to miss out on this beautiful reality of a relationship with God and putting the world back together with him. But what is this deal about um, righteousness and the teachers of the law and Pharisees and like surpassing the, the righteousness of the Pharisees? Like what is Jesus on about? You know, if we don't know much about Pharisees, but at least you know this, Pharisees are the ones that Jesus is always picking on for getting it wrong, right? He's the one that, they're the ones that Jesus is always calling out for like their hypocrisy. But one thing we know about Pharisees is that they really cared about righteousness. They wanted to get it right. They followed not only all 613 of the commands of the Old Testament, but they made fences around the 613 commands so they didn't even come close to breaking one of God's laws in the Old Testament. Testament, the first covenant um, in the Hebrew scriptures. They didn't want to like come close to breaking them. So like, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about we need to surpass their righteousness? Does that mean that we need to like live in a bubble and never do anything if we're going to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? No, I think he's on to something even better than that. But first, let's talk about righteousness a little bit. Let's talk about what we think of when we hear the word righteousness. Um, I know for me, and, and I imagine for you, I love being right. Like, I love standing uh, for what I believe to be right. Um, I love arguing. Pray for my wife. Um, seriously. Um, but, like, I love, like, um, being on the right side. I love recalling facts and pulling things together to, like, build my case for why I'm right. I mean, like, just go right to the veins. Rightness feels good, right? And I don't think I, I mean, I'll let me just say this, that uh, when I was growing up, my, uh, my parents, my grandparents, my first Sunday school teachers, they're like, that Joel, he's going to use his mouth for a living. He's going to use it for good or evil. Uh, he might be a lawyer and use it for evil, or he might be a pastor and use it for good. So we'll see. And I really wanted to be a lawyer, actually. That sounded fun, fun cars, the lifestyle. That sounded fun. Um, God got a hold of me. The rest is history. Um, and if you're a lawyer, that's cool too. Please don't hear that. Um, <laughs> but I love being right. It's just part of the way that I was wired. And I imagine that you like being right too. Like, I mean, if you voted for a specific candidate in 2020, you felt like you were on the right side and you had all the reasons why you believed that you were right and every other person was wrong. When it comes to like societal events where uh, we're like, okay, what should we do? You believe that you're thinking about it, your actions about it, you're on the right side of history. You wouldn't stand there if you didn't think you were on the right side of history. And bring it down into like our work environments, like when there's a question about um, where we should go as an organization, you argue to like until you're blue in the faith, or at least you like you know complain to your friends later about it that you're right and the others are wrong. You love being right. We like being on the right side. We stand there with our righteousness <laughs> that we are in the right. I don't think we're too far off from the Pharisees sometimes, too. Because in the common understanding of what righteousness was that Pharisees lived by, but people in the first century lived by, and I will argue many of us stand by, um, is this reality when, as it pertains to God. Righteousness, the common understanding that this is the right behavior that conforms to God's command. It's the right thing to do. And Pharisees thought this was the right thing to do because this is what God's commands did. So I had righteousness if I did these right things. I had unrighteousness if I walked into the wrong things. And I need to prohibit myself from doing the unrighteous things so that I could be righteous. 
This was the understanding in the first century, and this is what Jesus is going to detonate and blow up and give us a different perspective on. And to share with you about where Jesus is getting this from, we got to walk into an ancient water cooler conversation in the first century. Who's hyped about this? An ancient water cooler conversation in the first century. So uh, history tells us, not the Bible, but other sources around um, the Bible that were written about the same time as the Bible, said that there were two competing theories and conversations that were happening happening in ancient um, Jewish thought. One was by the rabbi um, Shammai. I almost say Shamu every time. Uh, Shammai said that the, the, the crux of the Bible, the way that you really live out this Jewish faith, was to do two things, was to love the Lord your God, and to keep the Sabbath holy, which was code word for be obedient, follow the law, do the right thing. So love God and follow the law. This is what the crux of the Old Testament of the scriptures to be a Jewish person was all about. That was Shammai. There was another school of thought, another popular rabbi by the name of Hillel. And Hillel had a different take, but it was similar, just a little twist. He says, yeah, the, the first commandment was to love the Lord your God with all that you have. And then he said this, love your neighbor as yourself. And people would go on the side of Hillel, where it was about loving God and loving your neighbor, and people would fall on the side of Shammai, saying, well, you got to love God, and you got to be obedient. you got to like keep all the commands and make sure you stay away from it. And this conversation was going on as Jesus was breaking onto the scene, and we actually see Jesus way into this conversation in Matthew chapter 22. Let's go there. Matthew records for us, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which were the priests, and the Pharisees, they got together. And one of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. They're asking Jesus to lean into this conversation that was going on about what's the the crux of the Bible. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus, you might have already thought this, but Jesus sides with one of the other rabbis. He sides with Hillel. He says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus says, uh, you've heard Hillel say this. I'm telling you that Hillel got it right. This is the right way to walk out your faith. It's not just about external behavior. It's not just about keeping your hands clean from dirty things. It's about moving towards the mess, moving towards the chaos, and bringing love to every situation. Jesus says, if you want to boil down what it really means to walk this out, to fulfill this, to actually have righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, it's all about love, baby. It's all about love. You might make it sound hippie or make it sound super spiritual or airy-fairy, but Jesus is like, no, if you focus on loving others, that is your righteousness, <laughs> loving God and loving others. So to Jesus, his definition of righteousness was not just about right behavior that conforms with God's will. It was about a heart posture. It was about love. This is how I'd say Jesus defined righteousness. The heart that is surrendered to King Jesus. A heart that says, Jesus, whatever you want, I am so blown away by your love and your acceptance and your mercy that I'm bending my knee in my heart to you as my king. And it's evidenced by restorative acts towards others. It's about loving God and loving others. And not just passively, you know, being accepting of people, but restoring and restorative acts of graciousness, of kindness, of forgiveness 
towards other people. This is how we walk out a surpassing righteousness from the Pharisees. This is how we walk into conspiring with Jesus to bring the up there down here. This is what it's all about. It's about our hearts bent towards Jesus and our hearts open towards others to restore what's broken. You know what's so cool? Is right after Jesus says this teaching about um, surpassing righteousness of the Pharisees, he spells out six different examples of how we're called to live this out and how to let love be our guiding light in the Sermon on the Mount. So here's Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, just a recap from last week. We said this is his kingdom manifesto, and he starts by the Beatitudes, and then he breaks into how to live out this um, righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. That's all about love. He gives six examples, so for the next two hours, we're going to break down all six of these. Um, I'm just kidding. We're going to do a couple of them, though. So here's where he goes very next to spell out what this righteousness that's all about love is. It starts here. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, which is in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. This is where if we're reading as modern uh, readers, we're like, yeah, no murdering. Yeah, because I haven't done that, right? Right? Can you guys be real with me? We haven't murdered anybody? That'd be cool. Um, but we're like, yeah, I'm on the good side. I haven't murdered. We feel like we're all good, but Jesus, he's so pesky. He's annoying sometimes because he goes down to the heart of the matter, right? And he says this next. But I tell you, it's not just about murder. Anyone that, uh, if, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus says it's not just about keeping your hands free of having blood on them. It's about what's going on in your heart. It's about this posture of your heart that might be angry. And I don't know about you, but I've carried anger in my heart before. I'm not the only one, right, that when you walk into a grocery store or you walk somewhere and you see somebody that you wish you didn't see and you hope they haven't seen you yet, your temperature just rises. You're hoping you don't have to have that awkward conversation. You hope they haven't seen you. You hope it's just going to be like, okay, I'm going to ignore them, ignore them, because you're angry with them. You're holding something in your heart. <laughs> I know I've been there. And Jesus says, conspiring with me in my kingdom means you've got to deal with the heart thing first. It's not just about having blood on your hands. It's about this anger that eats you up inside. Dallas Willard, a great theologian, he says this about this passage. He says, when we trace wrongdoing back to its roots in the human heart, we find that in an overwhelming number of cases, it involves some form of anger. And it's the elimination of anger and contempt that he presents as the first and fundamental step towards the rightness of the kingdom heart. Jesus, he's not just going about prohibitions, keeping our hands blood free. He says, you need to deal with the anger in your heart. You need to have this restorative act towards another person to make things right again. That's what he's after. He's about our heart. He's about us loving him and loving others through restoration. I love he doesn't stop there by just saying anger's bad. He says, you need to go after them to get a restoration in the relationship. He says, therefore, very next verse, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. You know what Jesus is saying here? You can be doing in this space to do the right religious thing. You can come to church. You're ready to sing your songs. You're ready to do your church thing. You see somebody from across the room that you've got bitterness, you've got anger in your heart towards. You know what the real religious thing to do there, the real deep spiritual thing to do there is leave church or take them outside and apologize. Get things out in the open air to restore the relationship. That's what God is after. Not you putting on some religious face, Oh, he's after your heart. 
He takes it even a step further in the very next verses. He talks about how you should really go after this. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. He gives us this image of people going to court to sue each other. And he's like, you know what my kingdom conspirator does, my partner does when they're walking to court? They're like, hey, can we settle this now? Can we settle this? Will you please forgive me? Will we make things right again? Instead of gleefully going to court to sue somebody else. This is what it looks like to partner with God because it's about the restoration of the relationship. It's not just about murder. No, it's about the anger that resides inside of our hearts. Jesus is like, oh, please, walk with me. Trust me so that you get rid of that. Next, the very next verse is Jesus goes into this strange section for us culturally talking about swearing oaths. This is what he says. We'll just read the whole passage. I'll give some clarity to it, hopefully. Um, again, you have heard it said it, that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Some of us would like to make our white hair black, right? We can't do that. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Like, what is he talking about? Swearing oaths, right? Like, we don't do stuff like this today. Actually, I'll argue that we do. But first, there was a complicated system in the first century of swearing oaths, where people basically had an excuse to kick the can down the road instead of doing what they said they would do, and to kick the can down the road instead of doing the right thing by another person. So if you owed somebody money, and it was time for you to give them money, you could swear an oath saying, oh, but I swear by heaven, or I swear by the temple that um, I will do it by next week. And then because the law said you could swear an oath, it would kick the can down the road so you didn't have to pay them. You could, they would come back to you a week later and you'd say, no, I swear by now the bricks of the temple. And you were legally allowed to do that. And again, kick the can down the road from you doing the right thing. It was, they, people found a way to manipulate the system of oaths. And Jesus is like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't swear oaths. Just be a person of integrity. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no, and just do what you say you're going to do. That really honors God, and it honors your neighbor. Jesus is like, you don't need a complicated system of swearing oaths if you just always tell the truth. So be a person of integrity. You know why? Because this shows that you're a part of this kingdom where you're bending your knee to your king. It also shows that you're wanting to honor another human being. Tell the truth. This is what we do inside of my kingdom. And you know what? People will turn their head and look at you like you're so weird and crazy because you're a truth-telling person. And Jesus is like, this is what my kingdom looks like. This is what people of my kingdom, this is how they act. They don't kick the can down the road on doing the right thing. They just do the right thing. You know, we don't swear by all these things, but like, well, sometimes we'll say, oh, I swear to God, or I swear to you, I'll get it done by next week. When we should just do it, Right? <laughs> Jesus is like, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. This is what we do. So he goes into another example just a couple verses later, and he starts talking about justice. And he talks about this idea of an eye for an eye. Let's get into the passage. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And man, we love this kind of thinking in our country, in our Western culture, don't we? Because we define justice like this. <laughs> We define justice as, um, you know, if they take your eye from you, if they hurt you, you have a proportional response to take something back from them. It's about payback. It's about retribution. Our entire, just a little sidebar, our entire system of justice in our country is built on the idea of retributive justice. 
where if you do this, I have the right to take a proportional response away from you. And this is how we define justice. Jesus is about to show us that there's another way that people in his kingdom should define justice. And it's not about payback. It's about something more creative. Dare I say something more beautiful. So Jesus says, you have heard it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And this is where Jesus loses at least half the room because it looks like Jesus is just being passive, right? Jesus is just like, okay, so there's no such thing as justice and you're supposed to just let somebody, if they hit you, hit you again and beat you up. Like many of us, if we can just be real, our thought bubble is that sounds nice, but it doesn't work in the real world. But what Jesus is doing is so brilliant, you guys. This is a really fascinating thing because Jesus isn't just saying be passive. Jesus is saying, I want you to think creatively about justice. I want you to think differently about justice. Dare I say upside down about justice. In the ancient world, people did everything with the right hand. Uh, they ate with the right hand. They shook hands. They, they worked with the right hand. They didn't do anything publicly with their left hand because let's just say their left hand was reserved for toilet duties. So everything was done with your right hand. Stick with me here. So, for example, if you're standing next to somebody and you're going to slap them with your right hand, how do you hit their right cheek? With the back of your hand. This is the only way you could have smacked somebody on the right cheek because you were using your right hand. Now, in the ancient world, to smack somebody with the back of your hand was demeaning. It was dehumanizing. It was reserved for animals. It was reserved for prostitutes. It was reserved for foreigners and people that were not looked upon as human. It was demeaning to smack them with the back of your hand. What Jesus is doing that's so creative is saying, when they smack you with the back of their, your hand, and they look down on your humanity, and they don't see the image of God on your life, Jesus says, don't smack them back. That'll just continue the cycle of violence and vengeance. No, I want you to stand up and offer them your left cheek in the defiant way of saying, you will see the image of God on my life. And I will not let you demean me, but I won't strike you back. Look at me and see the image of God on my life and hit me with the palm of your hand. Ooh, that's epic. <laughs> That's some upside down thinking about justice, right? Jesus is saying, you do this and you point the whole folly on the reality that they are not seeing the humanity in you. And you say, no, you will see the humanity and the divine in my life. He continues on just a few verses later with another example. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles with them. Make sure you walk two miles with them. Again, uh, some cultural context helps us here. In the first century, a Roman soldier could command any citizen of any culture that they had uh, you know, conquered to walk a mile with them to carry their pack. Again, which was like a demeaning act, right? To where like, hey, uh, random guy, I want you to come and carry my backpack as I walk this mile. You know, it was just like demeaning. It was like treating somebody less than human to do this. And Jesus is saying, when they ask you to do it, go with them. But Jesus gets a little like, <laughs> a little pesky here. And he's like, um, and actually go two miles with them. It wasn't, again, a passive way of saying do whatever they want. Because the reality is if you walk one mile with a Roman soldier because you have to, but then you just keep walking after a mile, who does that put the heat on? It puts the heat on the Roman soldier because they could get in trouble for commanding somebody to walk more than a mile with them. So it's like basically you walk in with the Roman soldier, like, hey, we walked a mile. I'm going to keep walking with you. You see how you shouldn't have done this to me? You see how this doesn't really work for you? You might get in trouble for this, buddy. Uh, should we keep walking? Uh, maybe they see us over there. You think they're going to ask us how long I've been walking with you? Oh, this is going to be interesting. See, 
It's like, I want you to see, Roman soldier, I want you to see the image of God on my life and that you will not demean me in the way that my creator made me. I'm not going to strike you back. I'm not going to continue this cycle of violence and retribution, but I'm going to bring some restoration and some, let's just say, kingdom mischief into the equation. Jesus is flipping upside down what we think about justice, saying it's not about retributive justice. It's about restoration. It's about pointing the folly on the injustice and bringing it full circle again. And just a sidebar, something we need to wrestle with. I want to challenge you to wrestle with this. What does this look like for us to be kingdom conspirators, part of partnering with God to put the world back together, to make up there, come down there, in a world where the, the letter of the law and the way that our whole thinking about justice is, is retribution. And Jesus says, retribution doesn't fit in my kingdom. It's about restoration. It's about forgiveness. It's about bringing people back into the fold. How do we walk that out in our lives, in our relationships, in our laws, in our systems? I thought I'd just let that hang out there and let us wrestle with that for a couple weeks. I have a lot more questions than I do answers. But this is what Jesus is inviting us into. Next, Jesus ends this passage about what it looks like to have our hearts and, uh, be driven by love towards God and towards other people to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. And he talks about our enemies. He goes on and he says this, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And this isn't actually in the Bible anywhere. This is actually some thought that historians have picked up from this uh, radical group of Jewish people called the Essenes that many people think that John the Baptist was a part of. But Jesus had heard people talk about this and he's like, no, 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 it's not about this. He changes the conversation and says this, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And again, we're really quick to be like, oh, I don't have enemies. I don't do the enemy thing. But come on, come on, let's be real. <clears throat> You've got people in your life that you consider to be your enemy. You have people in your life that have hurt you, or even worse than hurt you, they hurt your kids. And those people are your enemy. I see the tiger moms like, ooh, the radar's going off right now, right? When they hurt your kids, it's even worse. It's even beyond what you could imagine it was all about. And Jesus says, no, no, those enemies that you have, those enemies that you have, like, it's not about keeping them enemies. It's about turning them into friends. People that disagree with how to deal with COVID, people that voted for the other candidate, people that are your business competition in whatever sphere of work that you're in, Jesus is like, no, we don't think in those terms of enemies in my kingdom, in what I am doing. I love so much what um, Eugene Peterson does in his paraphrase of this passage in the message. He says this, I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. When somebody comes at you and you have aggression towards them, respond with the energies of your prayers. It reminds me of a teaching from Martin Luther, the Christian reformer, who said, the best way to turn an enemy into a friend is to pray for them every day. And don't pray those country music prayers, like I pray they get hit by a truck and their dog dies. Like, don't pray that kind of a prayer. Sorry. Pray for God's goodness in their life. Pray for God's blessing in their life. You can't bring them before a good heavenly father and want anything but goodness in your enemy's lives. That's how you transform an enemy to a friend. Go back to that verse again in the regular translation. One slide back, please. One slide back. Yeah, there you go. See what I have in red there? We do this because this is how we look like our Heavenly Father. We look like 
our dad, when we turn our enemies into friends, when we pray for them, when we want to bring blessing into their life, this is how we look like God's partners in bringing the up there down here. So we don't see people in the eyes of enemies, but we see them as people to be loved and people to be cared for. This is what we look like. We look like children of our heavenly Father. This is how we surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, is that we understand righteousness not as just external actions, but we see it as a heart that is bent towards our King Jesus and his kingdom. And it's evidenced by restorative acts towards people, especially people that are difficult and hard for us. Because this is what our Heavenly Father does. Which leaves me with this. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is, I believe, to be one of the most important questions we can have in the forefront of our minds every day. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not sure about the whole Jesus, God, Bible thing, man, we are so glad that you're here. This is not binding to you. I think you should lean in and just consider it. I think your life would be better, but just... This is for Christians. This is for Jesus' followers, people of his kingdom. Here's the question we should ask every day in every situation. What does love require of me? If our higher law is love, if righteousness is all about loving God and loving others, what does love require of me? This question is everything. Isn't it interesting that we can always find a loophole? We can always find a way around laws whether it be with our taxes or speed limits, we can always find ways around laws, but you can't find a way around love. Sometimes interpreting laws and commands are hazy, but when in doubt, we can always ask the question, what does love require of me? And it's clear, because we always know what love requires of us. Jesus ups the ante from the golden rule in this too, you guys. The golden rule, what does it say? Do unto others as you'd like them to do to you, as you wish they would do to you. Jesus, um, Andy Stanley says this, that he, he upgrades the golden rule and calls it the platinum rule. And the platinum rule is this, do unto others as God in Jesus did for you. In other words, do unto others as the way that Jesus loves you and treats you. We put that in front of us and we ask the question, what does love require of me? Man, it brings so much clarity to our lives if we're going to partner with God, if we're going to be his kingdom partners and bring the up there, down here. For example, when we find ourselves wanting to hold on to anger, when someone hurts our feelings or even worse, hurts our kids' feelings, when someone sins against us and does wrong against us, betrays us, lies, steals something from us either materially or immaterially, we can let God's spirit whisper to us. We can remind ourselves, okay, what does love require of me? How did Jesus treat me when I wronged him and when I was going against his grain? What does love require of me? Let that sit with us and cool our jets. When we find ourselves tempted to manipulate someone with our words, saying, oh, I'll do it by next week, I promise, or I swear, I'll do it by the following week, um, and we make excuses, we blame our circumstances, or worse, uh, we blame other people, and we lie, we can let God's spirit whisper to us and we can be reminded of this, what does love require of me? How, did Jesus, how does Jesus use his words towards me? How can I be a person of integrity to honor the other person and the image of God on their life? What does love require of me when I use my words? 
when we have those moments when we want to lash out at an adversary, someone who's against us at business, someone who's always pushing against us, even if we work together, they've always got, always got a different idea, and you're complaining to your coworkers about them, you're like driving home like Chris Farley and Billy Mouse, because you're mad at them. When you want to lash out, we can let the Spirit of God prod us to ask, what does love require of me in this confrontation? It's not passive, but we need to talk about it. I mean, think about this. When you were God's foe, when you were at odds with God, uh, God fought for you. He fights for me. We're reminded, love, what does love require of me? That justice in the kingdom of God is not retributive. It's not an eye for an eye. It's not retribution. It's not payback. But it's restorative. It's creative. And it's driven by love and restoration in the relationship. What does love require of me? That's the question. If our righteousness is going to surpass that of the Pharisees, we've got to be driven by love. Not only the oxygen that we breathe is God's love, but it's got to be what we breathe back out into our worlds, into our workplaces, into our homes. It's what we do. What if when people thought of Christians, they thought the first word that come to their mind is love? I think we'd be on the right track. And we might be knocking at the door of this kingdom of God thing that he's inviting us into. Uh, the whole end of my talk got screwed up last night because on my uh, newsfeed I saw this article that just stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> and I thought, oh man, I, I got to share this because this is some kingdom conspiracy. This is some upside down justice that I saw. I don't know if you guys saw this. Uh, the headline read that an 11-year-old girl with Down syndrome is walked to school by her country's president. This is in North Macedonia, which is a small Eastern European country. The president of North Macedonia walked this 11-year-old girl with Down syndrome to school because she was being bullied by her classmates and from other parents that didn't want her mainstreamed in their classrooms. President Stebo Pedrovrovsky held Embla Adami's hand as he walked her to her school. Embla was experiencing bully, bullying because of her Down syndrome. The president of North Macedonia also met with Embla's parents to comfort them, to let them know that he sees them and that they're going to move towards a change. Uh, Penderovsky, uh, I'm butchering this name, Penderovsky uh, talked to Embla's parents and he also made this statement that the behavior of those who endanger children's rights is unacceptable, especially when it comes to children with atypical development. I don't know about the president of North Macedonia's faith, I didn't do a Google search. I'm like, he's got to be a Christian before I share this. Um, I didn't do that. I think what he's up to is some upside-down kingdom conspiracy. It's some upside-down guerrilla theater of what justice is all about. Because this, this is the president who's got all the authority to come in, kick the kids out of the class that were bullying him, tell the parents that they don't belong here and that they should be ashamed of themselves. But what does he do instead? Holds her hand and walks her into school. The most powerful man in any room he walks into in his country, he walks in and he says, you belong with me, and she belongs here. That's some kingdom of God stuff. That's some stuff of up there coming down here. My friends, may we be people that we don't measure righteousness by how many Bible verses we know. We don't measure righteousness from the outward behaviors alone that we do or the things that we stay away from and keep our hands clean from. Let's not measure righteousness only from that, but it's deeper, it's bigger, and it affects our hands, that's for sure. It affects our minds. 
but it's our heart. Righteousness is about our hearts loving God and loving other people through restoration. This is what we're called to. This is how we partner with God. This is how we follow an invisible God in 2022. We join him in bringing the up there down here. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you, God. I am just blown away that you invite us into this. You know my mess. You know even when I do the right things and I do them for the wrong reasons. You know all that stuff. Nothing is hidden from you. And you invite me in. You invite me to the table at your banquet, your party of the kingdom of God, not because I'm good, not because I'm worthy, but because I'm hungry. And I say yes, and you're inviting my friends here in the room to this. You're inviting everyone who's watching online right now and later this week. You're inviting us to your kingdom. What an invitation. So God, may we be people that hunger and thirst for your righteousness, not by just filling up a religious list of things to do, but by every day bending our hearts to you because of your love and your kindness and saying that you are our king. And we're gonna show that you are our king to our community, to our coworkers, to our sons and our daughters and our parents and our siblings. We're gonna show that you're our king by restoring relationship by bringing a new kind of justice, by being people of integrity. Oh, God, what an invitation. God, may we be those people because you're looking for partners and you're on a mission. Oh, and you're inviting me in. God, we thank you. Oh, what a miracle it is. In your name we pray, and everybody agreed. Amen.